no, wisdom has limits, and so we actually have to be comfortable at times being uncomfortable, not having easy, clear answers to everything. And, and so uh, when it comes to how we journey and navigate, um, wisdom wants us to be equipped to navigate a journey. Wisdom, and, and I'd say even the Lord as well, doesn't want us to end our, our journey in terms of, of knowledge, understanding, how to, how to navigate faith. And so if we can begin with believing that there's maybe a little more nuance to most of life that, that requires greater engagement and wrestling, um, th- then maybe we have an opportunity to, to, to press in rather than I think sometimes we want easy answers. It's so that we can disengage and coast. Yep, oh, I know this guy says this, this person says this, they're right, they're wrong, and I can just keep moving on rather than having to actually wrestle with doubt, wrestle with questions. And today in chapter 8, we look specifically at how we respond to governmental authority, uh, injustice, and even mystery in the midst of contradictions. And just just please bear with me as we go through this, because I want you to know I'm, I'm going to keep my promise from the beginning of the series that each week we will get to good news, and each week we will get to Jesus, okay? All right, Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verses 1 through 9 says this. Who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. Verse 2. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him, or some translations, God's oath to you. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme. And who must say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps the command will know no evil thing. And the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there's a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be or who can tell him how it will be. No man has the power to retain the spirit. Another translation, restrain the wind. Or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. Okay, so there's a a lot here, guys. Um, Wisdom is helpful. Right? Wisdom is helpful for us to, and learning from history is important. Learning from experiences is great. These are all valuable. They can give you great illumination in how to navigate how we see the world and how the world responds to us. And I love that he begins this section with just commending wisdom in general. That we said, yes, there, there's a way that things in general go better than others. And he says, in this case, uh, wisdom brings, brings our face to shine. Um, A shining face in the Old Testament was a symbol of God's favor to you or for you. And and he says as well that it'll change your whole disposition. And so wisdom applied can change both your direction in life and your disposition towards life. Let me say that again. Wisdom applied can change the direction in your life and your disposition towards your life. And so he says he wants that applied when it comes to whether you respect or whether you reject God-given authority. And I think we should begin by saying that 
that how we respond to authority at times reflects what we believe about God's authority in our lives. Is there someone greater? Is there someone over us? Or are we our own masters? And so how we read and understand the wisdom that's shared here in Ecclesiastes, we kind of got to know a little bit of the context. And so we, we've said through this whole series that Ecclesiastes is not a destination, but it's, it's on a way of, of a journey towards Jesus and his kingdom. And so, yes, there's wisdom that's here specific about government. We're going to get into it in a moment. But it is not the totality of what God's word has to say that informs how we engage with government and what we believe about government. And so I think it's important for us to have a robust theology of government and how we respond to it. Um, Otherwise, we we pick and choose verses based on whether we like something or not. So if you like what the government's doing, you go to Romans 13 and say, see, do what the government says. You're supposed to obey. And and if you don't like what the government's doing, we we talk about tyranny and we talk about kingdoms of the Old Testament falling and and Jesus being on the throne, right? And, And so like, those are both true. So we need some wisdom in how to, to, to navigate this. And, and for us to have a theology of government and how people interact with authority figures is increasingly important because government keeps getting bigger and bigger. And as government gets bigger, individuals get smaller. And so government now, maybe in the last two years, has been way more involved in different aspects of your life than probably any of us have ever experienced before. And so... I don't know how you come into today. And, and I do apologize if, if this is like the first time you've been in church in a long time and you're like, I knew it. White middle-aged Christian pastor is going to talk to me about government. I was waiting for that. Right? But sorry, this is just where we're at in the text. So, so I apologize, but at the same time, we're going to get to good news. Okay. I want to give you some context. Solomon as the writer is a king. So Solomon clearly is okay with authority. He's okay with government. He has seen good kings, bad kings, imperfect government. He's interacted with a whole bunch of different world leaders. So Solomon's experienced uh, politics in his context and in a worldwide context. And, And as he does that, he's seen kings that are wise, some that are foolish, leadership that is prudent, sometimes leadership that's that's capricious and unreliable. Some brought stability and security and flourishing, and others brought brought division and destruction. And so he's experienced government-level leadership. He's, he's wise. He has wisdom. Um, and, and we talked about Solomon's story, right? He was given wisdom from God. He was given authority from God for God's people, for their flourishing. And so back in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, Solomon might be referring to himself in some way uh, as being a king committed to cultivating gain for the land. Meaning he says, hey, leadership that is good for the land is is good for the land. And, this is where the tensions come in, it's the same section back in chapter 5 that he talks about, like, the wickedness of, like, an overgrown governmental bureaucracy and how it holds people down. Specifically, the the poor and, and the marginalized. And so this place of tension is important because um, he recognizes, Solomon, that he's under God's authority, but he's not the ultimate authority. And so he's talking about how we respond to authority in general, and, and then how do we res- discern when to respect authority, and when at other times that we need to reject authority. And so 
for the context of Solomon as the writer into the context of these verses, there's some applications here as well, is that he's writing about a king. And the king that he describes is one who has seemingly unchecked power, right? It says in the verses, he does what he pleases. He says that, that there's a time where you're, you don't want to or shouldn't um, take a stand with an evil cause. I mean, there's times that the king or the government is going to go in a direction that is, that is evil. His policies on the whole, the king that Solomon's talking about, don't help. Instead, his authority, he says, is power over man to his hurt. And so we're like, all right, yeah, let's, let's rebel. Let's, let's William Wallace this thing, right? Freedom. Oh, except Solomon says, we're told we need to pay attention and respond by keeping the king's commands. And he says, well, why? Because his word is supreme. And that we have made an oath to God to follow leadership, or the king has made an oath to God. The translation there can be uh, either way, and so it's a little, it can be a little difficult to discern. But his idea is that, yes, there is a social and theological contract between a people and government, and between a God who's over all that. And so it requires some, some discernment and wisdom in how to navigate. And so in verse 3, we're told to not be quick to be disloyal. Uh, it says right in verse 3, um, be not hasty to go from his presence. That was a sign of distancing and disloyalty. Hey, right, not my president, you know, let's go so-and-so, right? You know, like, like it's, that, it's that, ah, this isn't my team. And so he's saying, uh, you want to be slow to maybe show your dissent to the government. But it's important that when he says don't be, or to be slow in doing it, he doesn't say never show disloyalty. In general, submission to authority, he says, leads to no evil thing. But he also says wisdom will lead our hearts to know what to do in the proper time and the just way. So are you guys confused yet? Like, is this a, a little difficult to navigate? This isn't just a simple do this, do that. And so he says the government's authority is not unchecked, in fact, but it's limited because no one has power, he says, over the spirit meaning like our souls, or the other translation is to restrain the wind. He's like, hey, government's big, but it ain't going to stop the wind. Right? A bunch of guys in jets can go fly to Glasgow for a climate summit. You ain't making it any colder or hotter. Like there's things that are bigger than the worldly governments that we experience, creation and the creator. And then he says, finally, death comes for us all. That wickedness, either corporately or individually, is not going to lead to life. And, and that there's, there's a day of justice that comes. So if you're confused and, and challenged, uh, I, you're probably in the right spot because this, I wrestled with this uh, a lot this week. And so when we get to, to our context and trying to understand, all right, how do I apply this wisdom? How do, what does this look like for us uh, today? Uh, well, I'll say this. In general, we, and when I say we, I'm talking about people of God, people whose allegiance is to King Jesus, whose mission is to love God and love our neighbor as ourselves, right? Who believe that the Bible is authoritative, that, that Jesus Christ is the king overall, that in general, we should keep the king's commands. Solomon here says, I advise you to pay attention to what the king says and what the king does. That's what the translation means when it says keep the king's commands. It doesn't mean just do what the king says, but it means you better pay attention to what the king says, both his instructions and his intentions. What's he trying to accomplish here? What's government trying to do here? What's the end result of this policy? Like, it, that requires paying attention. 
That requires being engaged politically. That requires being informed in what's going on. And, and, and that's challenging, right? Because sometimes I think we really just want to check out. Right? Just wait for King Jesus to come back. And here he's saying, no, you, you, like we all can't go move to our own individual ranches in Montana and just wait for government to show up to take our guns, right? And, and at the same way, we can't just march to whatever the culture's doing all the time and say, yes and amen, this is awesome. There's not just a place in the middle, but there's a different, there's a third way. And so for us, our social contract that we have with government is different than what Solomon's talking about. And I think it's an important distinction. Because when we read about a king and his people, we have to recognize that we live in, well, I don't even know the year anymore. Is it 2020 still? Is it going to be 2020 for like six more years? I don't know. 2021? Is that, are we good with that? Like, he's like, he doesn't even know what day it is. I think it's Sunday. Okay. We live today in the United States of America. That's the place that we live, and for most of us where we were born, and most of us where we grew up. And so the, the social contract that we have with government is not in any way, shape, or form a king under his people. We, in our case, are not kings and subjects. We are citizens with civil servants that are to be our representatives. And, and I know you're like, why is he doing the civics lesson? Because I think we, for, we, just, we just forget really easily. And we go to where uh, the Israelites went in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 8, where they're like, I just want a king like everybody else. I just want a government like everybody else. To be explicitly clear, the United States is not Israel, but, but bear with me. We don't have a king in the United States. We have the rule of law. We are not under governors and presidents like peasants in a kingdom, but we have representative leaders who are to work for us. And so we live currently in a constitutional republic in a land of laws, not rulers. And so that requires, again, a different level of engagement. And so we have to be careful to be wise and considerate on when and how we, we leave the king, break ranks, distance, uh, and express our disloyalty. And, and the reason is, is because he says, why? Well, the king does what he pleases. So, like, when you hear king, like, we can still say government, but just remember that our laws are different than what Solomon's talking about. The way that the government is set up is, is different. And so we can still, for shorthand, use kings as government, I suppose, but we need to use discernment and wisdom. It doesn't mean you get to disregard what government says in any way, shape, or form, right? The king's words and wishes are not so insignificant to completely disregard, nor are they so infallible that you should blindly follow. Again, guys, I'm, I'm calling us to, to have our eyes open and to not blindly follow, but to not be quick to shake our fists and to say everything the government does is wrong. Because who we are for in Christ, if you're a Christian, this is your disposition. You are a citizen of heaven. That is your citizenship. Yes, you are a citizen here in the U.S. if, if that's your, your legal status. But first and foremost, your citizenship is in heaven. And that means that you and I and we, we exist in this place and space as ambassadors of a different kingdom. It means that the only word that's supreme is the word of our Lord. That that is what our biggest authority is. And so um, we get to participate in the political process, which is great. And some, even in this church, get to be involved in, in politics and in government. And, that, and that's awesome. I want more people that love Jesus to be involved in government. 
I think that leads to the flourishing of, of all people. But we are not home yet. And if we think somehow that we're going to make it all right here, we're going to be very, very disappointed as we wait for the next election, the next administration, the next revolution. <laughs> let's, not, let's not go there yet, okay? We are exiles. We are not home. And because we are exiles, we are called to, to love our neighbors. Like, I don't want to just tell you, hey, it's going to get better in a year, or, or, or it's going to be better in two years, or better in five years. Like, like at a certain point, uh, I think maybe next fall we're going to do Daniel. Like, God tells God's people, hey, y'all are going to be in exile for at least 70 years. Meaning your generation's going to time out here. So you better get involved. You better love your neighbor. You better, you know, build houses. You better seek the flourishing and welfare of the city. And we're called to love our neighbors. In fact, Jesus is really clear. Not just love your neighbor. Pray for your enemies. That one's tough. Because we don't like our enemies. We don't want to see them do well. We want to see them fail. And we do a lot of us and them and a lot of division, and we'll get into that uh, in a moment. And so, while we pray for our enemies, we love our neighbors, we also pray and work as Jesus told us to, that your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's okay to work for systems of justice. It's okay to work for systems of flourishing. It's okay to apply how God made humanity with dignity, honor, and respect, and then apply that to how we govern and how we engage in society. And so I just want to submit to you that disengaging or disregarding government, politics, all of that is not appropriate, and it's not even really an available option. And part of that is if we're going to be ambassadors to this place and this space, I think we have to recognize that politics, and dare I say sometimes even in the church, has been elevated to a place of idolatry. Politics right now is our national religion. And because it's our national religion, it means it's where we see power applied or abused. It's where we see identities affirmed or discouraged or attacked. And so we need to be slow to break ranks, but also, according to verse 3, we do not stand in an evil cause. And so, I think if we're going to talk about idolatry and worship, I've, we've said this for many weeks, like, right? It starts with what we worship in here. It starts with our hearts and then our families and our church, and then, yes, our community and, yes, our country. But we are remiss if we never break ranks and find ourselves standing in evil causes at times. Because I, I believe as Christians, we have a commitment to the truth. And so we cannot live by lies. So whether it's government or media or your crazy uncle, or you are the crazy uncle, um, right? We just can't submit to lies. But we have to stand for the truth. And again, that requires wisdom and that requires engagement. And so as we respond to earthly leadership, I, I believe as Christians... We make seven common errors. Um, I want to be wholly upfront. When I came up with this list over this past week, I just thought about the ways that I failed. Okay? So um, do not think for a second that I'm going to come up here and pretend somehow to be unbiased, totally neutral. I have no background. I have no worldview that's shaped like, no, I know where I grew up. I know who my parents were. I know what media I've listened to. And I know that all of that, all my education, all of my experiences have all shaped and formed the way I see the world, which might be different than the way you see the world. And we've got to be really, really okay with that. 
and recognize that none of us are unbiased. Are we okay with that? All of us have a bias. All of us have experiences. All of us have different perspectives. And so when I, when I looked at this list, which I, I made them all D's so they're easy for us to remember and take notes with, uh, I'll, I'll walk through them quickly. These are things that I have done that I have to repent of and I have to be aware of. Number one, I'll go through this quickly. Demonizing. Demonizing, right? All politicians, all policies that you don't like, all party affiliations that you don't like, if they do it, it's wrong, it's evil. Everything they do is wrong. Everything they support, we should oppose. So if a party's like, hey, it's sunny outside, we're like, no, it's not. I'm going to own some libs and tell you it's gray, right? We don't do that. Or like, hey, you, you know, like, like cake is great. No, I can't believe the conservatives are trying to press their values on us. No, the sky's blue, cake is great, okay? So we need to, like, recognize that those that we disagree with are evil, dumb, or wrong. No, we can't go there. And I'd say this, especially if we're called to reach a culture and a place in space, good luck loving your neighbor as yourself if you're starting with you're evil, dumb, and wrong. Let me tell you about Jesus. You want to come to my church? No. Number two, deifying. That's, this is the opposite, right? These two are, are married to one another. Demonizing the opposition, deifying those you agree with. Oh man, I love this guy. He can be brought hope and change. He's going to make America great again, right? And we wave those literal flags and we're like, they're saints. Everything they say is right. Everything they say is right. Their take on a position, that's the one I'm for. Everything they do is awesome. If they say it, it must be right. And, and we do this in some pretty weird ways, right? Depending on your persuasion or how you've engaged in the last 18 months, somebody throws on a lab coat or somebody throws on a flag lapel pin. You say, oh, they're an expert. We need to deify them and listen to them. Oh, they're a patriot. They care about my freedom. I'm going to listen to them. They're people. We're people. Yes, with wisdom and experience, but goodness sakes, we have to, if, if you never disagree with your political party or your political heroes, then I would just submit to you that's where your idolatry is. Because you're not being shaped, or, or, oh, we'll get there in a second. Okay, number, number three. <laughs> Dishonesty. And, and I, I don't think we always know we're doing this one, but it happens when we accept false narratives. Right? This has been happening from the beginning, so you're not alone in this. You thought fake news was a new thing? No, fake news went all the way from the beginning of the Bible when Satan came up and said, hey, tune in here to, to Fox News and MSNBC. I wanted to let you know that did God really say not to eat of any tree? No, he, he's holding out on you. Right? Fake news has been going on for a while. False narratives have been going on for a while. And what we do is at times become intellectually dishonest. Right? We, we apply... Um, a lot of justice and a lot of scrutiny to one side, but not the other. And then, as Christians, this is so frustrating for me when, when I just see people post things that like, just aren't even remotely true or are a lie or have been debunked. And so it, it's really, really challenging, right? And, and I can almost, like, th this last week was a great example. Oh, I better be careful. Okay. I can tell who you voted for and what media you consume based on how you reacted to the Kyle Rittenhouse verdict. Okay? I can just tell you. Now, we're done with that. I'm not even going to get into any more than that, okay? But you can tell. 
right? Like, and it's just like, no, yeah, no, I, I'm not, not with you on that one anymore. Okay. So what happens is we do the same thing to media that we do to politicians, where uh, if, if we like a source, we listen to it. They're always right. We never question it. If we don't like a source, they're always wrong. So even if they're saying what's true, like, oh, no, that's a liberal source. I don't like it. Or that's a conservative source. Oh, you're sharing that? Uh-uh. I don't like your source. And so we, we promote false narratives. And, and guys, this happens in the church and it happens in the world. And so whether you're like, you were all in on QAnon, sorry, not true. If you repeated that Joe Rogan took horse medicine, also not true. I can't do any more examples. I'm going to get in a lot of trouble. Okay. Number four. <laughs> Lack of discipline. <laughs> right on cue. Okay, number four, lack of discipline. That is reacting quickly rather than processing. Right, here in these verses he says, don't be hasty and consider the time, he says. So hot takes, starting with a narrative, oh, just, hey, I better know, I, I better have an opinion about the Rittenhouse trial. I haven't read anything about it, but I'm going to go. Uh-uh. Like, oh, I, I better know something about the infrastructure. No, like, you don't have to be an expert on everything to be engaged. And to be and to be positive. And guess what? I, I've yet to meet a person who was waiting for my or your or our hot takes on social media about any issue to say, "Good, now I know what to think." No, like he says, "Don't be hasty. Consider the time. Don't start with a narrative and look for quick confirmation. That works against slow wisdom." And that leads us to number five: a lack of discernment. Number five: a lack of discernment. This happens in the church when we get our morality from a culture or a government that is immoral. And so, if you're looking to leaders or media or popular culture, and they're getting a whole bunch of issues around um, when life begins, around gender, around um, uh, justice, uh, uh, just, like, pick the issue. And, and, and they are uh, allow an entire city to go lawless for a summer and then come down hard on a water park. Like this is a real thing that happened in our state. And then you're looking to them to define what loving your neighbor is. I would submit to you that it's very easy, whether you're conservative or liberal, to get discipled by cable news and social media more than the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ that says there is a king in heaven who is over all. And Jesus is on the throne and he is the authority. And, and, and we're trying to love our neighbors well. Like, there, like, go read the Sermon on the Mount, right? And that's what we're leading our youth through right now. Matt and his team are leading them through the Sermon on the Mount. Like, like there's a lot of wisdom and, and understanding around how we're to love our neighbors as ourselves in the Bible. And so we don't look to a world that, that uses Jesus as a mascot for their own political um, advantage to tell us what it means to be a Christian or what loving our neighbor is. Go to God's word. Go to God's word. Go, like, I just spend time in God's word. Be discipled by the Holy Spirit and by God's word over you, in you, and through you. Then apply that to what you see happening in the world. Turn off. If you go into an app on your phone, turn off Instagram and Twitter and get on the Bible app for a second, right? Okay. Number six, I've probably lost all of you at this point. Number six, deference. Always respecting and never resisting. Well, they're the government. We have to do it. Romans 13 is not the only verse in the Bible. It, like, 
like John the Baptist, who Jesus says was the greatest man of all time, spoke truth to power, government power in particular. And he said, what you're doing is immoral. How you're acting is wrong. You're not leading to the flourishing of God's people. I can't believe you're claiming to be a leader of God's people. And, and Herod put him in prison. And ultimately, John was martyred because he had actually created political enemies by speaking truth to power, specifically when it came to morality of how God designed people to be and how to function. So let's not pretend that you never, that you always show deference like, the disciples themselves in Acts told the religious authorities, like, you can comply with government all you want, but at a certain point, like, we're going to serve the Lord. And Jesus himself, very specifically, says, yes, render to Caesar what's Caesar's, and render to God what's God's. Do you need an answer for the question of what's God's? It's everything. Everything. God's not like, okay, Caesar, you get that. I'll just, I'll just take care of everything else. No, the idea is that Caesar is to be under the Lord. Number seven. This one might be more tough for some of us than others. Defiance. Always resisting and never respecting. Oh, man, I, I can't stand government, period. Like, like, like we're not going to do anything. Jesus tells us to render to Caesar what Caesar's. To pay our taxes specifically. To recognize that there is an authority over us. That, that government does come from the Lord. Like, like this, this uh, lawless libertarian utopia that, that maybe you want, it ain't, it ain't happening. Paul appealed to the judicial system as an apostle, and, and he went and didn't just say, forget you, Rome, I don't need to do anything. He said, no, he appealed and worked with the judicial system that they had. He claimed the privilege of his Roman citizenship and said, actually, you have to give me freedom here because I'm a Roman citizen. So Paul, who had a pretty robust theology of Jesus Christ as king, also said, I, I understand how to navigate and engage with the government. So I think we can err when we assume those in authority have some unique wisdom to always be respected or are always incompetent and need to be rejected. The truth lies in between as leaders have a limitation on their wisdom, just like the rest of us do. But they also have greater opportunity, yes, for blessing, and yes, to inflict harm on others. And so now you're like, okay, here's all the ways I've gotten it wrong. How are we going to respond? I want to start with this principle. We have to respond. You have to respond and be engaged. And the reason being is this. Politics matter because politics inform policies. Policies impact people, and people matter to God. So you don't get to just say, I just want to love my neighbor, and I never want to be involved in politics. If you love your neighbor, you better be involved in politics, because you better want policies that bring justice and mercy and grace and flourishing to the people around you. Specifically in these verses here in Ecclesiastes 8, verse 5, for the most part, respect authority and know it will go better for you if you stay in your lane. That's not the translation. It actually says, verse 5, it says, um, the wise will, sorry, whoever keeps the command will know no evil thing. So if you stay in your lane, do as you're told, comply, for the most part, things are going to go well with you. And, verse 8, know that earthly authority has its limits. And be comfortable and willing and okay when you or others 
call out government and say, government, you're out of your lane. That's an okay place to be because, I mean, really clear here, verse 9 says that the power is applied to hurt. Not all authority exercised is good. Verse 9 is yeah, clear that power needs to be or can be abused other people. There are injustices. That it is wrong when government oversteps. It can and should be resisted and rejected. And so, like, like if, if you're like, no, no, we never resist. We never resist. Like, um, anybody want to argue that it wasn't loving your neighbor for the North to invade the South and free the slaves? And we want to be like, no, no, we should have just, nah, just kept it going. No. Like, it's loving your neighbor to storm the beaches of Normandy to free a continent from the oppression of the greatest evil our world's seen in a couple hundred years. That's loving your neighbor. It's loving your neighbor to practice civil disobedience and sit at the lunch counter you weren't supposed to sit in or to sit down on the bus you weren't supposed to sit in and, and peacefully protest against Jim Crow laws. And it's loving your neighbor to advocate for and actually vote and pass legislation to end Jim Crow laws. That's loving your neighbor. All of those things are loving your neighbor. And maybe you're like, I'm not storming the beaches of Normandy. Uh, or or you know, I'm not, you know, I don't want to get that. It's also loving your neighbor to live a peaceful life quietly. To raise your kids well, to love Jesus, to love those around you. And it's loving your neighbor to peacefully protest, to lodge your complaints, to start campaigns, and to be active and engaged. And in all of that, this is, I think, the biggest one for us. No matter what's happening, remember who's in charge. Because we get so spun out and so freaked out when we forget who's in charge that God gives limited authority to human leaders, but only God commands the soul. It says no man can restrain the spirit. Only God commands your soul. No, no leader should or, or could attempt to control what you think or what you believe. God determines the limits of our lives and he will determine the limits of our leaders. And so as we navigate the world, like here's some words from Jesus, like you're, you're not going to be released from conflict. If you think somehow as a disciple of Jesus Christ, you're going to be able to go from now until Jesus comes back or until you die without any conflict with government or society around you, you've misunderstood the call to be holy as he is holy. And Jesus tells us very, very clearly, Matthew 10, 16, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. That sounds terrifying, unless you remember who's in charge. So how do we act if we're sheep amongst wolves? He says, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Jesus' instructions to disciples then and to us now, be wise and be innocent. Be wise and be innocent. Pray, serve, love, lead in your families. And, and, and don't just be waiting for the next election or the next administration where you think everything's going to get better. But have our hope resting that if you're in Christ, it's, it's, there's an election that happened before the foundation of the world that he has elected you to be sons and daughters. That there is another administration coming in the second advent where Jesus Christ comes down and, and a new Jerusalem comes down and there's a kingdom that will have no end that is righteous and just. No more sin, no more suffering, no more tears. Okay. 
got a few more verses. We've got to keep, keep going here. Hopefully I've given you some things to, to chew on. Ecclesiastes 10 through 13, or 8, 10 through 13 says this. He, he's going to talk about politics and he's going to talk about injustice. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they'd done such things. This also is vanity or vapor or worthless. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God, because they fear before him. But it is not to be well with those wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. This is a worship issue. And so he addresses two big ideas that I'll go through quickly. Number one is injustice, and number two is slow justice. Injustice, he says, is inflicted by wicked. It does have limits, right? He says their lives are going to come to an end. But as he's looking around his culture, he's saying, oh my gosh, there are people that are doing wicked, horrible, evil things. And, and, and when they die, people are like, whew, big exhale, that guy's gone. It's like, no, hooray! He should be celebrated. This is awesome. We love this guy. He's great. And you're like, what is happening? The wicked are being held up as heroes. The villains are, are, are not being called out for who they are. And those who are heroes, those who are righteous, are being called wicked and evil. He's seeing this gross injustice in what happens in a world when the wicked don't get punished, but instead they get praised. Something in us when that happens cries out, no, I want quick, swift justice now. I hate when injustice happens, when, it, when things are going in ways that don't lead to flourishing. We want clear consequences. And when that doesn't happen, we get discouraged, we get disoriented, and we get disillusioned. And what he's saying here, Solomon, is that it emboldens others to evil as they believe that, again, that first lie. That sin doesn't have consequences. And so this is kind of reinforcing that, that point from earlier verses of like, you, you, you can't just look to government and culture around to decide what's righteous and good. Because here in these verses, it says that culture is praising the wicked. That they're holding up villains as heroes. And, and so we don't look solely to prevailing culture to tell you what's right and wrong. And, and so uh, people are looking around, and all of us are doing this without the Lord. We're looking around, and we want meaning, and we want identity, and we want purpose, and we want belonging. And so if you're not finding it in that you're created in the image and likeness of God with dignity and respect, but instead are looking around the culture, then you will look at what is being celebrated, you will look at what be, is being lifted up, Conversely, you will be, look at what is mocked, what is demonized, and you will move yourself towards whatever the culture has said is okay, whatever the culture is celebrating. We want to find our identity and affirmation, and we look for it by what culture is either embracing or encouraging, and it's not ultimately profitable. And in verse 11, he says that there becomes deep heart and cultural implications to persistent injustice. Like, good things don't happen in a culture in the long run when there's no justice. Because people don't see wickedness condemned or evil challenged or justice brought. They just begin to assume it's okay to live a completely unrestrained life. Why should I be deterred from living selfishly if the most selfish people, the most wicked people, are the ones who get praised 
and get honor. And so where do we go when lawlessness goes unpunished or evil is encouraged? Well, I, see, this goes back to the character and nature of God in verse 12. Like, we can rest. That when we see injustice, it doesn't mean there's no justice. But rather, God has slow justice. It's not no justice, but slow justice, because God is giving opportunities for repentance. And, and when we've experienced God's patience, we should then be the most patient and gracious people towards those who have perpetrated injustice. And I know that's not always the case. And I confess, I'm, I've received a lot of grace and mercy from the Lord, and I can be pretty dang judgmental too. But what we're called to do is rest in the character and nature of God that our insecurity when injustice is never addressed, it, 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 it gets changed when we see God's slowness is not because he doesn't care about injustice, but because he cares about his mercy leading to repentance. 2 Peter 3.9 says it this way, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So know that justice and vindication will come. The evil will not endure. When you see injustice, don't think anyone is getting away from the justice of the Lord. For there is a day of death where all will face judgment. And the question of what happens there is that God is both exceedingly patient and he's perfectly just. You want easy right and wrong answers? Wicked burn, righteous live. Hey, guess what, guys? We're all wicked. And so we get to hold on to God as just and rest in God being merciful and gracious and kind and patient. We have to have both these attributes in tension. Romans 11.33 says it this way. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable or ununderstandable are his ways. And we're like, yeah, okay, we don't get God. We, we, we don't understand mystery. Well, no, the context of these verses is specifically around God's mercy to sinners who need it. But there's things we're not going to understand. But the, the overwhelming character and nature of God is one that bends towards mercy and grace. And that leads us to these last verses in Ecclesiastes and we're done. Ecclesiastes 8, 14 through 17. There's a vanity that takes place on the earth. That there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. He said this is also a vanity. Verse 15. And I commend joy. For man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on the earth, how neither day nor night does anyone see sleep. He's like, hey, the world, everything that's going on, it leaves me so restless. Where do I find rest? Verse 17. Then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. It is okay to question when we see injustice. It is okay to wrestle with doubt 
It is okay to see things that are inconsistent or, or, or seem to be contradictions. Like our hearts want justice. Our head wants answers. Like, like that's okay. Like, like don't just settle for a pat, easy answer. But he says exertion, endurance, and expertise, those are all good things, right? He says, he says hey, toil to, to seek, to have wisdom. He's like, but no, it might not satisfy at the end. Pursuing truth is noble and good, but it's not going to always yield the comprehensive answers we seek. So what do we do? Verse 15. We choose joy. Like, wait, what? He's like, hey, um, government's kind of rough. There's some injustices. Uh, uh, there's abuses of power. Wicked get praised. What, 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 do we, what do we do? You're like, yeah, come back. Burn it all. Let's go. And he's like, yeah, I have, have you thought about joy? Have you thought in the midst of, no matter what your circumstances are, to, to, let me commend joy to you. That in the midst of trial, in the midst of difficulty, like, hey, guess what? There's going to be not either a silver lining, but like, there's an opportunity to still enjoy life. And I'll submit to you, like, this past week, I, you know, I've, I've referenced this a few times, like, I got my screen time on my phone, and it said, down 25%, and I was like, I do feel better. By 25%. <laughs> right? Like, there's opportunities to just enjoy the good things in life. Like, it's sunny today. Don't watch the Seahawks. It's going to be terrible. They're going to lose. Right? Like, like, choose joy instead. Like, he commends it to us. This is a gift from God, he says. Good food, good drink, good company. Like, over the next, like, month, as you have opportunities to choose busyness, worry, fear, exhaustion, I just commend you, choose joy. Enjoy a season of celebration. He says here, joy is to be a close companion who will, quote, go with us in toil. And later he says it's a gift from God. And you're like, I don't know if I can have joy because I'm so worried about so many other things. All right, let me submit to you verse 17. God has already worked for you and says it is finished so that we can have joy today. God is working in ways we don't even see or know, but if we had the opportunity to, would lead us to such great rest in his sovereignty that he is still in charge and on the throne. And that means over our government, over our communities, over what's going on in your family, what's going on in the cells of your body, if you're dealing with sickness. God is still in control. And because he has already worked, we can have joy now. Because God is still working. Meaning it's not like, well, anyway, you guys just figure it out on your own until I come back. No, because he's already working, he can have rest now. And when we wrestle with contradictions and what can be known and what can't, like, the mystery's okay, but come back to what has already been revealed to us. There's a God in heaven who knows you and loves you that the greatest example and, and, and embodiment of his love is that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live the perfect righteous li- life that none of us have lived. That the wickedness that leads to death and, and our sin that leads to destruction, Jesus has already taken care of on the cross. So we, I implore you not just choose joy, but rest and know that Jesus has chosen you. That, that God doesn't see you in your wickedness and sin. He sees his son, Jesus, in your place. And stop pledging allegiance to your political party or your favorite news source and pledge allegiance to King Jesus. And, and know that, that the gift that is given 
The gift that you receive in, in celebrating in Christmas is, yes, light has shone into darkness, but a king has come. A savior has come. One who has dealt with your sin and one who promises to return. That there is another advent. There is another administration coming that is perfect and righteous and just. So rest in what has already been known. The King Jesus the just has suffered gross injustice on the cross. You hate injustice? Jesus hates injustice. Jesus suffered the greatest injustice there was because he was perfect and sinless. And he was placed on a cross and murdered by his own creation. Jesus knows injustice. And he suffers it so that wicked sinners like you and me don't have to face condemnation, but rather we receive coronation as sons and daughters of the king, that we are no longer rebels, but we are citizens. And so while, while wisdom can help you survive this world, it's God alone that can equip you with joy in the midst of any circumstances. And we simply trust Jesus. Let's pray.